Thank you once again for joining me with Just a Kiss. Today we are going to continue to book two with 1984. In George Orwell's novel 1984, there are three slogans of the party. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. The party said that Oceania had never been in an alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceania had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did the knowledge go? Where did it exist? Only in his consciousness. He who controls the past ran the party slogans controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. And yet the past, though, of its nature, alterable, never had been altered. Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it. In Newspeak, Doublethink. Iconic comedian George Carlin offers illusions, delusions, and consensus of reality. He explains how the rich keep us separated and speaks about the owners that exercise the interest of control while he breaks down the real American dream, much like a dystopian society where who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Chapter 1. Four days later at work, Winston is walking past the dark-haired girl and she suddenly falls, hurting her arm and passing him a scrap of paper folded into a square. The note says, I love you. Winston suddenly feels an intense desire to live. Then, he doesn't know what to do. For one person to tell another that they love them requires subterfuge because the party sees love as dangerous. Winston wonders if the girl is a rebel. She is, but through love, not violence. Later, Winston sees the girl in the lunchroom, but can't bring himself to speak to her, until finally, after a week of failure, he manages to sit alone with her. All the time of their meeting, 
at Victory Square is where there are a huge crowd of people running to see the convoy of the Eurasian prisoners. As they stand together, watching the event, the girl whispers to Winston directions to a location in the countryside near a dead tree. As the last truck in the convoy passes, the girl squeezes Winston's hand. Winston and the girl see nature as a safe haven that gives them privacy from the party. But the fact that they will meet under a dead tree, nature that has died, is not a great omen. Chapter 2, Cut to Sud Sunday, Winston follows the brunette's directions and the two meet in the countryside, away from the telescreens and hidden microphones. The brunette kisses Winston and tells him that her name is Julia. Winston feels confident with a hiding place, given Julia's apparent experience. He tells her that before he read her note, he had wanted to rape and murder her because he thought she was a spy for the thought police. She laughs and tears off her sash. She laughs and tears off her sash, then shares a block of black market chocolate with Winston. She explains that she disguises her illegal activities by working for the Junior Anti-Sex League. Winston's violent fantasies indicate how sexual oppression leads to violent desires and suggests how the party therefore purposely interferes with the private sexual lives of its citizens through constant surveillance in order to more easily be able to whip them into war fever. From the first moment of their relationship, Winston and Julia see their relationship as a political act against the party. Even the food they share is illegal. The two walk into the open fields and Winston recognizes the pasture that he has dreamt of, the golden country. Julia removes her clothing and tells him she has slept with dozens of party members. Winston loves this and tells him that the more men she has had sex with, the more he loves her because that means that he is breaking the law with the party. They have sex and fall asleep. Half an hour later, Winston wakes and lies looking at Julia's naked body. He considers the sex they have had to be a conscious political act a blow struck against the party. Julia instructs Winston on how to return to London. Over the coming weeks, the two arranged several meetings, but only succeeded in getting it on once during the way, month of May. Engaging in what they call talking by installments in parole districts after work, Julia reveals that she is 26 years old, lives in a hostel with 30 other girls and had her first sexual encounter when she was 16 with a 60-year-old party member who later committed suicide to avoid arrest. Although she is against the party, she is interested in any organization of revolt against the party. But she is always up for some sex to quietly and personally rebel. The two muse about the reasoning behind the party's anti-sex campaign. Winston tells Julia about a walk he once took with his wife Catherine, three or four months into their marriage, during which he com contemplated pushing her off a cliff to her death. 
Winston said that it would not have mattered whether he pushed her or not, because it is impossible to triumph over the kind of oppression the party exerts over their lives. Julia does not understand. The citizens are required to have morning exercise, and Winston tries to remember a time when Oceania hasn't been at war during the exercise. He is struggling a bit. He thinks about the fact that the written record is perpetually changing that people are not allowed to speak of any version of events other than the official one. It is impossible to keep track, but Winston seems to remember that though the country has always been at war, the enemy has changed. According to the party, however, Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia and allied with Eustasia. Winston knows and remembers things differently. Winston decides that the party's ability to change the past by controlling not only the media, but also the minds of the citizens, that it's a frightening power. He focuses on the concept of doublethink and newspeak, reality control. He has contradictory opinions when it's ideologically convenient. Winston tries to remember the year he first heard of Big Brother and realizes the past has been destroyed, not merely altered. At that moment, the telescreen screams at him to pay attention to the workout, and Winston realizes that his facial expressions are betraying his loathing of the party. Winston is shocked and realizes he's being under surveillance, and therefore in great danger. Winston decides to rent the room above Mr. Charrington's junk shop. Winston realizes that in renting the room, he is taking a definitive step. He is making the relationship with Julia official. He knows that such an action is against the party. A month in, Winston decides to rent the room from Mr. Charrington's junk shop. Winston realizes that it could be detrimental to his life. He knows that any such action is something the party will torture them for if found out. He waits patiently or impatiently for Julia to arrive for the first time. Winston watches a red-armed prole woman sitting, hanging laundry in the courtyard below. He knows that this is taking a terrible risk and he involuntarily thinks of the torture rooms at the Ministry of Love. The pair have been preparing for hate week at work, and because of the longer hours, Winston has become increasingly frustrated sexually. He daydreams about growing old and living a carefree life with Julia. Julia soon bursts into the room with real coffee, milk, tea, sugar, and bread, luxuries that only inner party members are privileged to have. She puts on makeup, which is definitely not allowed to do, and totally turns Winston on. The two go to sleep after having sex. Lounging in bed, Julia notices a rat and Winston proclaims that it is his biggest fear. Warning bells are ringing. The two then chat about the paperweight and the picture of St. Clement's Church. As they look at the picture of the church on the wall, Winston speaks the first time of the nursery rhyme he learned. Julia 
to his surprise, provides the next two lines. She says that she will take the picture down and clean it before another day. Winston gazes into the glass paperweight, imagining that it is the room they are in and that the coral inside is his life and Julia's, fixed in eternity. Winston wishes that this moment could continue forever, indicates his understanding that it cannot. Chapter 5. Simi, the genius co-worker, has vanished, as Winston predicted. Now he has ceased to exist, therefore he never existed. Winston offers the various preparations and observes the hate week, posters, propaganda, hate songs, and streamers. A poster that shows a monstrous Eurasian soldier is holding a machine gun displayed all over the city, even outnumbering the portraits of Big Brother. Winston reflects that he met with Julia at least seven times during the month of June. All this sex has alleviated the symptoms of his varicose ulcer, his coughing, and his need for alcohol. Winston briefly thinks about Mr. Charrington, the guy who runs the shop at the parole district is always down for small talk. Winston has stopped drinking gin and grows healthier. Mr. Charrington shows Winston other treasures from the past and teaches him other nursery rhymes. He thinks that Mr. Charrington is an extinct animal. He is thankful for the privacy, sanctuary Mr. Charrington affords himself and Julia. Winston tells Julia about his suspicion of O'Brien that he is like them, an enemy of the party. Winston becomes troubled by Julia's impending death due to their affair, which, in case you forgot, is completely illegal. He fantasizes that Catherine, his wife, former wife, will die so he can remarry, and even about changing his and Julia's identities to become and live like proles. Winston and Julia speak about politics and the Brotherhood, but Winston is very annoyed by Julia's selfish concerns and lack of lofty rebellious goals. She thinks the secret disobedience such as their lovemaking is the only effective form of rebellion against the party. He speaks of questioning the party's authority and organized revolution. His intellectual crush on O'Brien and passing on his efforts to the next generation. Book 2, Chapter 6 takes place in the corridor of the Ministry of Truth. O'Brien stops Winston in the hallway at work and makes a reference to the vanished Simi because referring to the unperson constitutes thought crime, Winston realizes O'Brien is risking his own safety in order to gain Winston's trust. Winston feels as though he has been waiting for this moment for his entire life. O'Brien discusses with Winston the 10th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary and tells him that he can take a peek at it if he wants, if he takes a visit one evening to his home. Accepting O'Brien's home address, 
Winston feels affirmation with regards to the conspiracy that he has dreamt of. He feels that the event is a continuation of what he started with the diary and then with his affair with Julia. Yes, he still accepts that it will eventually lead to death of the Ministry of Love. Book 2, Chapter 7 takes place at Mr. Charrington's shop. Winston awakes one morning in the room atop Mr. Charrington's shop crying. He tells Julia about his dreams of the past. Repressed memories of his childhood are revealed. Up until this moment, Winston has believed that he had murdered his mother. But the dream says differently. Winston tells Julia that the party has made them inhuman by severing familial ties and loyalties, and by its attempt to alter history. The proles, he says, are the only human creatures left. Winston and Julia discuss their future actions, and given O'Brien's contact, the two acknowledge the possibility of one, torture, and two, death, if they get caught. Whatever they say, roughly speaking, as long as we stay true to each other, Winston feebly claims that confession is not betrayal, as long as you know on the inside that you are right. This is like integrity, like, or the diet version of principles. In Book 2, Chapter 8, takes place at O'Brien's luxurious flat. The inner party has it made. The description of the materialism here is not unlike that said of the capitalists earlier in the text. Interesting, O'Brien turns off the telescreen in the room, a privilege only inner party members are afforded, and Winston eagerly declares he and Julia's desires to work with the Brotherhood. You remember that rebellious force against the party? O'Brien and Martin, his Chinese servant, offer them wine. They toast to Emmanuel Goldstein, their common leader. The four converse about Goldstein, the conspiracy, and the underpinnings of the workings of the rebellious forces. Finally, O'Brien asks various questions of Winston and Julia to test their commitment to the Brotherhood. Finally, O'Brien excuses a tipsy Julia. Upon Julia's exit, O'Brien questions Winston about his hiding place and tells him about the importance of Goldstein's book, a manifesto of sorts, which he shall arrange for Winston to receive. Someone will drop off Goldstein's book in a public place, and Winston is to have it read and returned within 14 days. O'Brien dismisses Winston and alludes to a second meeting. Winston asks if he means in the place where there is no darkness, as he often has dreamt of O'Brien saying. Without skipping a beat, O'Brien nods and repeats the confirmation. Finally, Winston and O'Brien repeat the old rhyme about St. Clement's Church. To Winston's surprise, O'Brien knows the full stanza. It's almost like O'Brien has been watching him or something. The two shake hands, and O'Brien turns the telescreen back on while Winston leaves his abode. Perhaps we should start with you telling us a little about yourself. I like um, English cookery, English beer, French red wine, Spanish white wine, Indian tea, strong tobacco, coal fire, candlelight, 
and comfortable chairs. Go on. I, I dislike big towns, noise, the motor car, the radio, tinned food, and central heating. Interestingly, and modern furniture. Quite. Goldstein's manifesto is now in Winston's hands. Winston goes to his private room atop Mr. Charrington's shop to read it. Having worked more than 90 hours in five days leading up to the commencement of Hate Week, he is tired. He reflects back on Hate Week, the switcheroo on the sixth day planned by the party on which a speaker announced that Oceania was at war with East Asia and not Eurasia. The subsequent riots by the masses blaming the switcheroo on Goldstein. The overwhelming 18-hour days he and workers like himself spent in the records department to delete any reference to Eurasia having ever been an enemy. Imagine a boot stamping on a human face. Moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. With assisting the party with its deliberate lie, all because he now has the book in his possession. As Winston reads through Goldstein's The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism, Julia joins him in their private sanctuary. He reads to her. Ironically, the manifesto has its titles lifted from the party slogans, more or less tracing the political theories underlying capitalism, socialism, and the two nations beside Oceania. The manifesto discusses classism, the necessity of ignorance, poverty, and warfare, as well as power structures and government. Winston reflects that he has learned no new knowledge thus far. Indeed, he understands the how, but not the why. Winston and Julie awake at 8.30 p.m. to discuss how the future depends on the proles. They realize that the two of them are in a really bad situation, or rather, we are dead. From behind the picture of St. Clement's Church, Mr. Charrington's voice repeats, You are the dead. Turns out that picture of St. Clement's Church, actually a dummy front of a telescreen. The troops storm in through the window and proceed to kick and beat Winston and Julia. The troops drag Julia away, and Mr. Charrington finally enters the room. Winston realizes that he was a member of the Thought Police. One, they don't want to 
population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe all day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. Thank you once again for joining me with Just a Kiss. I look forward to our next time.